welcome to episode 13 of PathPod. I'm Dr. Sarah Jang of Duke Health, and this is our next episode of PathPod News Edition. This week, our host, Dr. Meredith Pittman, speaks with Dr. Jeffrey Goldstein and Dr. Ellie Shanes of Northwestern Hospital Perinatal Pathology and Dr. Malavika Prabhu of Wild Cornell Maternal Fetal Medicine about how COVID-19 impacts pregnancy and perinatal health. Our host, Dr. Pittman, can be found on Twitter at M-E-R-E-P-I-T-T. Now here's your host, Dr. Pittman. Hello and welcome to PathPod News Edition. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. This week, the number of new infections and deaths due to COVID-19 continued to rise at an alarming pace in Latin America, and Brazil now has the second most cases of any country in the world after the United States. Epidemiologists warn that the numbers in Latin America lightly significantly underestimate the true rate of infection due to low overall testing. Meanwhile, in the United States, new daily case numbers are declining in New York, New Jersey, and Washington, but other areas appear poised at the edge of an outbreak, including cities and towns in Arkansas and Texas, where new cases are still doubling weekly. As individual states and countries around the world grapple with how to most safely restart life during a pandemic, much consideration must be given to how to protect those most at risk for significant morbidity and mortality, including the elderly, the immunosuppressed, and pregnant women and infants. Today on News Edition, we will be focusing on the latter category as we discuss COVID-19 and its impact on pregnancy and perinatal pathology. Our first guests practice perinatal pathology at Northwestern School of Medicine, and they are joining us today to talk through the histologic manifestations of COVID-19 in the placenta. We have with us Dr. Jeffrey Goldstein, Director of Perinatal Pathology, and Dr. Ellie Shanes, an Assistant Professor of Pathology. Drs. Goldstein and Shanes recently published an article titled, Placental Pathology in COVID-19. Dr. Goldstein and Shanes, welcome and thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. So first of all, I want to ask you, at what point, once you started having COVID-positive patients in Chicago, at what point did you think, oh, we should start collecting things because we may be able to put out some data on what we're seeing? We actually started thinking about doing this study uh, before there were any COVID-positive patients in Chicago. I think possibly before there were any patients in the U.S. Okay. <laughs> Around um, the time the first patient in the U.S. happened, I think. Yeah. So the, this, the study, the idea was, okay, we know that there's going to be a pandemic at some point. We know that a lot of the pandemics, so the H1N1 flu, which is more severe in pregnant women, virus, you know, associated with birds effect. Yeah. So we know that there is a, a reasonable probability that there will be another pandemic. Um, and so, you know, we don't know, you know, at the time we're like, okay, we don't know if this coronavirus is going to come to the U.S., but we, we should figure out how we would study this so that when it happens, we'll be ready. And then it happened, and we were sort of ready. <laughs> <laughs> you had at least had the thought. You'd had the thought. Yes. Yeah, we thought through what we were doing, and, and we, knew, we, knew that, we knew that this was going to be important. Okay. Uh, so we started and I noticed that on your paper, which uh, just came out in the American Journal of Clinical Pathology, that you had um, pediatric co-authors and uh, a co-author from the Department of OBGYN 
-hmm. when you were thinking about prepping for this? Were, were they part of that discussion that you were having or did you kind of rope them in after uh, COVID hit? Absolutely. I don't think the study would have been feasible without them. Um, um, Emily Miller, who's the obstetrician, um, you know, she uh, set up the OB COVID unit in our hospital and um, he has been, you know, really, you know, instrumental in tracking the patient. Be reasonably confident that we're actually capturing all the patients. I think it's important for our residents who are listening and any med students too, that you know, pathologists, we don't, we don't operate in a bubble, you know, and these, these clinical collaborations that we have being a good colleague to our clinicians is really important because they really can be very helpful when these types of studies come along. So I thought that was great. And did you already have a sense based on what had been seen with the 2003 SARS or with any cases that were coming out of China or Italy? Did you have a sense of what you were going to see in these placentas? Um, yeah, we were going in pretty open-minded. Um, you know, there, it, there was one series from SARS with seven placentas that described increased perivillous fibrin. Uh, one of them had a large infarct, but there wasn't a lot of literature. SARS was a relatively contained epidemic. Uh -huh. There wasn't a lot of literature coming out of that uh, on placental pathology, although we knew that maternal outcomes in SARS w were relatively severe. Mm -hmm. um, there hasn't been much in MERS because that, um, even though it's kind of an ongoing, it's not uh, very easily transmissible between people. So there are not a huge number of cases. Okay. And so there's not much, there's really nothing in the literature on placentas in that. So we didn't know what to expect going okay. in. Did the placentas of these patients that your colleagues flagged for you as being from COVID-19 patients, did, did they have to undergo any special handling in the gross room? Were they grossed under a hood or, or were they informal in for longer? Or was it, was it okay to process them normally? That's a great question. So we've been through a few different iterations. And if I recall correctly, what we're currently doing is there is a, a prepper um, mm -hmm. who wears an N95 and does formal and on. And then they sit for it's at least 24 hours, um, and then, then they're grossed. Those protocols have evolved in terms of the entire gross room, which I'm sure everybody is experiencing at, at their hospitals, but also depending on availability of PPE. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, yeah, of course, of course. I thought the way that you chose your control group, so you, you have patients who have COVID-19, and then you had to choose control groups for what you were going to measure these differences against. And you actually came up with two control groups. Could you speak a little bit about why you chose the control groups that you chose? Sure. Um, controls in placenta is always a fraught issue uh -huh. um, because we have about 12,000 deliveries a year at our hospital and we examine about 3,500 placentas. Mm -hmm. um, and so the okay. question is, should the comparison group be among that 25% that were sent, which is enriched for uh, preterm birth, enriched for preeclampsia, enriched for you know all sorts of negative outcomes, you know, or should you try to do something else? Yeah. Um, and so we ultimately we decided to do sort of a very large historical series um, um, over seven years, and then sort of nested within that a group of patients with melanoma or history of melanoma. A history of so, okay. Yeah. So the, the indications for submitting a full-time sort of evolved over time, but 
we know that in patients who have had a melanoma or have any malignancy, there's a risk of metastasis and may metastasize to the infant. Um, mm -hmm. The risk of that is very, very low. Um, so those placentas are all sent. And you could argue that melanoma is something that is not like preeclampsia or choriognitis or something. It's something that happened before the pregnancy that doesn't necessarily alter the care that the patient had. Mm -hmm. um, and yet is an indication for getting to us. And so, you know, those patients, you know, versus the other comparison group, they are more likely to deliver term, they have fewer comorbidities um, during their pregnancy. Okay. So if you would if you had only looked at all comers for placentas that you had looked at before, those are enriched for possible abnormalities, whereas the history of melanoma or history of malignancy patients were theoretically a more normal placental population, which I just thought was fascinating because I'm not a perinatal pathologist, so that would not have occurred to me. So then you had these, these uh, 15 women who had third trimester deliveries and had positive SARS-CoV-2 PCR. Were these women otherwise healthy or did they have some other comorbidities that you had to take into consideration? So there was one patient that delivered at 34 weeks, mm -hmm. um, and that we almost certainly would have um, examined her placenta. You know, the others, um, there was one patient with hypertension, which sometimes we see those, sometimes we don't. No, the one who delivered at 34 weeks actually was delivered preterm partially because of an increasing oxygen requirement from her COVID. Oh, wow. Um, Can you describe for me some of the more striking findings that you saw when you examined these placentas? Sure. So the, the most striking finding and the, the one that we want to highlight is um, sort of in the category of decidual arteriopathy, which is injury to the maternal blood vessels. So, okay. um, I know a lot of your listeners are not training, and so I'm going to sort of delay on this a little bit. Um, so the placenta, you know, one of the major roles is to allow for oxygen and nutrient exchange between the mother and the fetus. Mm -hmm. And in order to allow that, um, we see remodeling of the maternal vessels. So the spiral arteries will go from being uh, muscular to being very thin-walled and very dilated. That's the allows for maximum blood flow in. And what we see is we see some we see a, a variety of problems with that. We see um, in the placental membranes we see blood vessels that have their walls around them, which would inhibit blood flow. Okay, muscular walls that would inhibit blood flow. Um, we see a similar thing happening underneath the placental disc. And then we see um, atherosis and fibrinoid necrosis, which is direct injury to the vessel wall. So it really, so these, these maternal vascular findings were really striking in these cases. How many, how many of your 15 patients had those? So seven of the 15 patients um, had some kind of um, problem with maternal vessel. Um, okay. Three of them had the atherosis and fibrinoid necrosis. Uh, five of them had uh, muscular layers around the arteries in the membranes, and then two of them had um, abnormalities in the remodeling of the maternal vessels underneath. And so this, these changes of maternal vascular malperfusion, do you usually see those in more like common viral infections? I don't remember that being a, a feature of, say, like cytomegalovirus. What patient population usually has these changes? So these are the changes that are most associated with preeclampsia or pregnancy-induced hypertension. Oh, right. Pregnancy-induced hypertension. Okay. 
And in that context, it's interesting to note that our patient, none of our patients had a diagnosed preeclampsia, and we only had one with gestational hypertension. So the incidence that we are seeing these changes, um, in, especially in light of the lack of clinical finding of preeclampsia, uh, to us was pretty striking. Yeah, that's very interesting. So usually seen in hypertensive patients, but your patients, only one was hypertensive. What about inflammation? What about velitis? Was that something that you saw in these placentas? Not particularly. So we saw um, two patients that had chronic velitis. Okay. Um, both of them were low grade. Um, and, you know, I think this sort of brings up the importance of having a control group um, because so two of our patients um, had chronic velitis, um, which is 13%. Okay, two at 13%. Um, this is versus 9% of the melanoma patients, 9% of the sort of broader control population, which is, is not statistically significant. You know, so we would argue that it's really not really increased at all. Sure. Um, which is surprising. Um, now, there are, are a couple of case reports of um, histiocytic intervillocytes. Um, we have a lot of um, histiocytes in the space in between the villi. It can be very severe. Um, histiocytic intervillocytes have a very high rate of adverse outcomes. And that might be the kind of thing that you would expect to see with a viral infection, um, but we don't, we don't okay. see it in our series. Okay. So there's another really recently published study that came out in Pediatric and Developmental Pathology, and they, it's from a group in New York that had, um, I think, 20 cases. They also mm -hmm. didn't see a lot of inflammation, um, but instead of so much maternal vascular changes, they reported more fetal vascular changes. Was that something you saw in some of your cases? We didn't see any statistically significant difference in fetal vascular malperfusion um, in our series when compared to our controls. Okay. Um, I'm not sure you know, what the patient population difference might be, I will say that, you know, we have continued to examine placentas mm -hmm. from these patients, you know, that we haven't included in this series and we haven't statistically analyzed, but our sense right now is that we are continuing to see these maternal vascular changes and we will have to add those, look at that statistically, we don't know for sure, but our sense is that we are continuing to see the same finding. I think that's really interesting. And then the infants from these cases, were they sick and did they get tested? So all, all the infants um, got uh, nasopharyngeal and oral swabs. Uh -huh. um, and at least once, some of them got it twice. All of them were negative. Um, in terms of their short-term outcomes, um, they all had good APGAR scores. Um, all the uh, term infants went home by day of life four. Um, wow. So that, that's very good short-term outcomes. What I think about is I think about um, body of research on uh, early life events or in utero events having long-term outcomes. So uh -huh. What I'm talking about the 1918-1919 flu pandemic, people that were in utero during the pandemic um, have increased rates of cardiovascular disease and lower lifelong income than you know their peers who were born a few months earlier, a few months later. And that's something that I find really really fascinating about perinatal pathology um, and something that I think, you know, can be very powerful. But in this case, what that says to me is that we really need to be following the outcomes from these kids, not, you know, cutting off a, day, a discharge, but really, you know, thinking long-term. 
The article is now published in the American Journal of Clinical Pathology online, but you originally posted on MedArchive. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't know, MedArchive is a free online server for complete but unpublished and therefore not peer-reviewed health science manuscripts. The server was started by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, Yale University, and the British Medical Journal Group. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to speak a bit about why you decided to release on Med Archive in this preprint format before going through the whole peer review journal process. This was a tough decision for me and for our groups. So um, this is my first time using a preprint server. Uh -huh. um, and you know what I saw and what made me want to do this is that things are moving very fast, and sure. the difference between you know coming out now and coming out next year, coming out two weeks from now. So I think the article came out on MedArchive on last Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So that's 10 days ago. So mm -hmm. that, that 10 days difference, you know, a lot of the time it doesn't really matter. Um, now I think it does matter. Sure. Um, I knew that there were going to be a lot of papers coming out and I felt like we had something, you know, very important, but also I felt <laughs> like I had a swarm of bees in my brain, um, <laughs> you know, that would keep me from being able to pay attention. Uh -huh. you know, and function. And so, you know, we just needed to get it out, you know, right. get it out in the world. Um, and in that respect, it was very, very helpful. MedArchive actually has somebody review to make sure that you're submitting a finished product. That's something that I didn't know. That took about five days. AJCP, they were great. So they, they allow you to do a preprint. You know, a lot of journals are very have a lot of restrictions about that. Yeah, I think this was a new experience for both of us writing something as things are happening quickly, we're both used to working on a much sort of slower trajectory where things are developing in the time space of time that we're used to in pathology. Uh -huh. um, and so in the context of this rapidly developing global pandemic, another reason I think it was important to us to get it out there in addition to the swarm of bees that Dr. Goldstein was describing is just, you know, when you write something, you write it for a time point. Sure. We're describing the literature that exists at the time that we're writing. And in between us putting that down on paper and it coming out in the literature, more literature is, being, is coming out so rapidly. Right. And so what we have described at that time point is no longer everything that exists. It's more quick than the full peer review process. And it says, look, this is when we wrote it. This is what we had available when we were writing the paper. And I think that's another reason just this is developing also rapidly. Right. I mean, this is a kind of unprecedented time for all of us and we're figuring out as we go. I'd love, if you don't mind, to wrap up for you just to let our med student listeners know why you chose pathology or why you chose perinatal pathology or anything you'd like to say to people who are trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives in the midst of a pandemic? So I'll tell you why. There's, there's two reasons why I became a pathologist. The first reason is, um, you know, when I was in med school, you know, you have patients that are coming in, you're working them up. And it, I realized that when somebody comes in, there's this whole universe of possibilities. And then what happens is that as you sort of work your way through their, their history and their physical and their labs, you come to a diagnosis. And then once you come to the diagnosis, you're generally speaking, you're like in a line. You know, you're sort of everything flows from that. And pathology is the specialty of getting to that point. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was, you know, that was really powerful for me. Um, 
the other reason I kind of hesitate is a little bit more personal. Um, I found that when I would be on the wards and seeing patients, I would, I would bring them home with me. I would be thinking about them and be sort of re-fighting their fights and re, you know, reliving their, you know, not, not just the medical, but also the, the social and yeah. the dealing with the, the financial, the administrative, all that stuff. And, and it would just sort of pick at me. Mm-hmm. And I find that with pathology, that little bit of distance really helpful for my well-being. You know, some, some people that speaks to them, some people doesn't. Yeah, I definitely still have very vivid memories of very specific patients from medical school. And um, I think, you know, in order to be a really good clinician, you have to be able to, to be really empathetic and at the same time be able to place that bit of distance. And I wasn't sure how to do that personally. I totally understand that, that carrying them home. Dr. Sains, what drew you to pathology? Um, I have to say, I'm really glad to have this conversation because um, I don't think many people bring up that particular aspect or reason for going into pathology, but I also feel the same way in terms of, you know, I loved clinical medicine. I do sometimes miss it, but I also had a hard time with taking it home with me. And to be completely honest, I chose pathology because when I thought long-term, what did I think I would be happy doing? What would interest me intellectually the rest of my career, you know, hopefully a very long career, and mm-hmm. what wouldn't burn me out? Uh, what would be something that I would find engaging for year after year after year? Pathology is what I, what I came to, and I had no idea what pathology was when I went to medical school. Yeah. Um, but once I found that there was a specialty that was both dedicated to providing patient care, but also intellectual and um, had the opportunity for doing science in a way that I really appreciated. I really um, was, you know, attracted to all of those aspects of it. Oh, I, I love that. I love both of your answers. And I think it is, I think it is true. When, when I was rotating through the pathology department at WashU as a med student, some of the pathologists were well into their years and still just loving coming to work every day and doing their jobs. And I could see myself doing that for a very long time. And I think that's important to think about that, what you could be doing in another 10, 20, 30, 40 years, depending. This has been so lovely to talk with you. I'm so glad to meet you both. And congratulations again on your findings being published. Now I'm delighted to have Dr. Malavika Prabhu joining us to discuss the clinical aspects of COVID-19 in pregnancy. Dr. Prabhu is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology who specializes in maternal and fetal medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. Dr. Prabhu, welcome and thanks for taking time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Okay, so to start, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly maternal fetal medicine is? What was a day in your life like pre-pandemic? Our job is pretty awesome, if I can say so myself, because on a weekly basis, we do anything from provide outpatient prenatal care to high-risk inpatient obstetrics, doing deliveries, doing consultations on sick women who are admitted to the hospital prior to delivery, as well as doing ultrasound and prenatal diagnosis throughout pregnancy to make sure that the fetus is healthy and developing normally. So every day is super different. So you're doing high-risk obstetrics 
And it sounds like in the setting of a pandemic, you would be the obstetrician who is trained to deal with pregnant patients who would come down with that virus. Is that correct? Correct. So especially for women with COVID-19 who are admitted either um, during the time of their delivery admission or when they're pregnant or interestingly enough, postpartum with COVID-19, we would be the physicians contacted to help evaluate how best to manage these patients. Okay. And what do we know at this point in time about pregnancy and the SARS-CoV-2 virus? Right now, a lot of what we know comes from first China, um, and then more recently, the New York City experience. So I can speak first to the New York City experience. Most of the women that we have taken care of are women who've had third trimester um, infections, and honestly, primarily infections around the time of their delivery hospitalization. Okay. And a lot of women have actually been tested in New York City specifically, um, due to universal testing guidelines, not just symptomatic screening. Okay. Therefore, the vast majority of women who've actually presented with um, COVID-19 in the third trimester have been women who are asymptomatic or probably very mildly symptomatic or possibly pre-symptomatic. Therefore, to be honest, their outcomes have been fairly benign thus far, thankfully. Um, some interesting differences that we've seen, um, both from the Chinese data and actually some very recently re released United Kingdom data and then New York City data, does show that there is some increased risk of cesarean delivery. Okay. A little unclear why. Um, in China, the reason why people had C-sections was that was just how they wanted to deliver the baby. They didn't really give women an opportunity to do a vaginal birth. In the United Kingdom, as well as in New York City, they did allow for vaginal deliveries, but my suspicion is that for um, a lot of reasons, providers were probably a lot quicker to do a C-section even if they attempted a vaginal birth, in part because of the time it takes to don the PPE, perhaps because of worsening maternal respiratory compromise. There are a few case series of women from New York, from Philly, and then some data from the UK that have described this pretty severe illness among pregnant women, some of whom have been mechanically ventilated. And in those women, um, C-sections were far more likely to be performed, even though mechanical ventilation and critical illness alone is not an indication for a cesarean delivery. Okay. And I was reading some data that came out of University of Washington, and they were saying that in their pregnant patients, there were worse outcomes in patients who had pre-existing conditions. Is that something else that has been seen in New York or the UK or China? Yes. So pretty consistent with the non-pregnant COVID-19 data, women who are obese, who have some version of diabetes, whether gestational or pre-gestational, or hypertension at baseline are at increased risk of having COVID-19 and having worse manifestations of COVID-19. That was also described um, in the United Kingdom data. And you mentioned universal testing guidelines. So is that what we're doing now as a nation is testing all of our pregnant patients for COVID-19? That would be very interesting scientifically to understand the true prevalence. However, that is not happening nationwide. In New York City, over a time period of several weeks, um, many institutions opted to do universal testing 
A, because we wanted to know, we wanted to take care, make sure we knew how to take care of pregnant women and their neonates. And B, I think healthcare workers wanted to know so that they knew how best to uh, don PPE, especially as we started to identify that many pregnant women were asymptomatic at the time of presentation. Otherwise, providers would not really have worn more than now a surgical mask, but you know, in the early days, which sounds crazy to say, because the early days was only two months ago, <laughs> um, we weren't initially wearing surgical masks in the hospital for low-risk patients. It was okay. only for high-risk or COVID-positive. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. It, it is crazy to think that March actually feels like a very long time ago, even though it really wasn't that long ago at all. There's just been so much that's changed. So we just heard from Drs. Goldstein and Shanes from Northwestern University, um, and they published a series about 15 uh, placentas from COVID-19 positive patients. And one thing that they found is that in half of the placentas, they had evidence of maternal vascular malperfusion as if the women had had preeclampsia or pregnancy-induced hypertension. However, only one of their patients actually was hypertensive. So I was wondering if you, as a clinician, had seen any sort of difference in your patients who were symptomatic with COVID-19. Have you seen vascular events in these patients? So that's a great question. Some of the early data that came out of China did suggest that women with COVID-19 were at higher risk of having preeclampsia, and a little bit it's the chicken or the egg which came first. Sure. Um, We haven't really seen an increased incidence of preeclampsia in our COVID-positive patients, although that may be just a numbers game with more patients. We may start to see a difference. Um, We, interestingly, in in our early um, data that we have on our women who've had placental pathology done, we've actually seen more fetal vascular malperfusion and actually clots on the fetal side of the placenta. Okay. Which I think is a little bit interesting. And, you know, the non-pregnant COVID-19 data is suggesting this increased risk of VTE events, especially in critically ill individuals. Sure. We at our institution have not really had a truly critically ill woman, meaning someone who's been mechanically ventilated. We haven't had a single VTE event. But even though VTE is more common in pregnancy in the postpartum state, I think it's still overall so rare that not having an event does not mean that women ultimately wouldn't be at increased risk for it. Sure. So that's a little bit about what's going on with the moms. What about infants? What's the incidence of vertical transmission of this virus, or does that even happen? So far, the data is actually pretty sparse on vertical transmission. Um, When we think about vertical transmission, the real question is neonates who are born with actual virus in them. Sure. And there have been a couple of case reports that might suggest um, a positive RT-PCR in these neonates. Mm -hmm. However, you always have to take into account whether it could have been honestly just early horizontal transmission, if the baby roomed in with the mom, if the mom was breastfeeding, what kind of hand hygiene the mom used. The other question that has come up with respect to vertical transmission is that a lot of babies have had neonatal cord blood checked or serum serologies checked within a certain number of hours after birth. And some of those neonates do have positive IgM. Mm-hmm. Reasons for the IgM being positive are A, false positive, cross-reaction, possibly through breastfeeding, although 
hard for me to imagine that you could get IgM all the way into your serum from ingesting it through your GI tract. Right. But the reason why that's um, important is that typically IgM is not thought to cross, cross the placental barriers. It's too mm. large of a molecule. Right. So if an IgM really was there in the baby, then maybe that suggests like earlier congenital infection, but we just don't know enough yet to know how efficient SARS-CoV-2 really is at causing a vertical transmission event. Okay. So when COVID-19 was first becoming an issue in the United States, I think there was a lot of misinformation about how this was basically just like a seasonal flu, which we now know that it isn't. But I was wondering for you, taking care of these pregnant women, is there a difference that you're seeing between the pregnant patients who come in with a seasonal flu and a pregnant patient who may come in symptomatic with COVID-19? Well, the classic teaching when it comes to the flu, whether it's just seasonal flu or H1N1, is that pregnant women were really a lot more susceptible to the um, severe manifestations of the flu, increased respiratory compromise, need for mechanical ventilation, ICU admission, um, and even death both with flu and with H1N1. Mm-hmm. So far, there has not been a great study trying to answer that question, is um, COVID-19 worse in pregnant women? Okay. So we don't actually know right now. Well, that's something for further study then. And I, I also wanted to ask, in case we have any uh, pregnant pathologists who are listening, <laughs> are there extra precautions that pregnant women ought to take or should just be masking and hand washing like everyone else? So we are certainly recommending all of those universal precautions. For pregnant healthcare workers, um, to the extent that they can minimize or limit their exposure to individuals with known or suspected COVID-19, I think that is reasonable until we learn more. And certainly for pregnant women with those comorbidities, that might place them at increased risk. Um, Some others from the non-COVID literature include immunosuppression, use of those drugs, IBD, et cetera. Um, If those individuals have those types of conditions, then I think all the more reason to try and remove them from the front lines. But the CDC has not recommended that um, pregnant women be completely removed from taking care of all women with COVID-19. You know, all of these recommendations are pretty much based on the best data that we have, which, as I just mentioned, isn't strong enough yet. Sure. So these recommendations will continue to evolve as we move forward. And then I also wanted to ask, what is happening with these patients after delivery? So let's say, um, you know, in a normal time, we know that a certain subset of patients will experience postpartum depression or some baby blues, a lighter form. Um, But now you are taking care of patients who might be high risk, who may or may not have had COVID-19, who are going home and isolated in a pandemic. What is the mental health status of patients you're seeing right now and and what are women and physicians doing to help keep everyone, keep new moms sane? I think the isolation is real, especially when you have a newborn baby. And for those of us who've had the newborn baby, it's it's tough enough in the best of times. Yeah. Um, But the isolation, I think, is taking its toll. And you're right. It's whether you're COVID positive or you're COVID negative. At our institution, we've implemented a two-week... phone Uh follow-up just to have like a standard set of questions to ask women, how they're doing with their baby, how's their mood, do they need any extra help with 
X, Y, or Z. And, you know, the resources women could need run the gamut from mental health resources to lactation support to sure. um, honestly extra help buying diapers and getting <laughs> food because so many people have lost their jobs in New York City that things that we took for granted are obviously huge stressors for families. We're also systematically screening individuals for postpartum depression okay. um, as another way to try and identify and fulfill women's mental health needs. And, you know, one of the other things that's playing into probably how women and their, their families are feeling taking care of this newborn is, especially in the height of the COVID pandemic, women were being discharged maybe a little bit earlier than what we've traditionally discharged women. And of course, they were safe earlier discharges, but it just meant less time in the hospital getting accustomed to taking care of a newborn. So our inpatient providers also stepped up to call women 24 hours after discharge just to make sure that they were in fact continuing to do well medically, that their questions were answered to take care of themselves and their baby. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And what about for you personally? So most of our listeners are going to be pathologists or medical students who are still figuring it out. And pathologists, you know, relatively few of us have patient contact. So can you tell us just a little bit about what it's been like treating patients on a labor and delivery floor in a clinic in the midst of a global pandemic? You always imagine this chaotic situation, but frankly, at probably its peak in the hospital, the hospital was eerily calm and quiet. Oh, yeah. Because there just wasn't a ton of in and out traffic. It was literally just who needed to be there, which was the providers, and who needed to be there, which was honestly like, overall healthy pregnant women coming Mm -hmm. in to have their babies. Um, And on the labor floor, everything was really fine. Yes, there were, you know, a fraction of women who had COVID-19 and many of them were dismayed to find out about their results and the implications it had for their baby and their family. But things, as I kept telling my patients, were a lot more calm than what I think people were imagining. It wasn't like one disaster after another. (laughs) And um, then when the patients actually came into the hospital, because for their outpatient visits, we switched several things to telehealth, such that they only had in-person visits every four to eight weeks, just depending on what was going on. Uh They noticed the same thing. So I think it's been better than what any of us expected, honestly. Yeah. That's very heartening. I am glad to hear that there was some semblance of normalcy for you and for your pregnant patients as they were going through, you know, some major life events in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, Dr. Prabhu, I appreciate your time and your willing to talk with us today about uh, pregnancy and COVID-19. And please stay safe and healthy in New York. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. Thanks to Dr. Malavika Prabhu of Wild Cornell Medicine, Dr. Goldstein and Dr. Shanes of Northwestern University, and to you, the listeners of PathPod News Edition. Tune in again next week for another timely interview on a pathology topic. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, 
their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.